you can take up residency in the present moment. And it's not about feeling good or having some wonderful, calm, insightful experience. But as you engage in this radical act, which I call a radical act of one sanity, because it's just stopping and dropping into the present moment, which is your life. And so when you do that, it's a very radical act of sanity, but it's also a radical act of love. It's love of the miracle of being alive in this moment. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. How are you doing? It's a few days in to 2024. How's your heart? How are you? This has been a hard few weeks for me. I mentioned to you, my dad is sick, but there's other things coming up. I just feel like the, um, the more willing I am to really be awake. You realize how much you've been holding on to your whole life that kind of gets stored up. And sometimes you're in situations and you're like, why am I creating this moment where I'm like reliving this pain that I've had since I'm like seven years old? And my husband and I had this amazing conversation yesterday and he was so kind and he showed me such grace and he was holding my hand and he's like, I am here and I can see when you're sort of lost at sea and you're just in it. And um, I think it just takes tremendous kindness and courage for someone to love you and be willing to stick and sit beside you even when you're just pushing them away. So I feel really grateful for that. And I'm staying a few extra days in Florida to spend some time with my dad. And then I'll go back to Los Angeles. And I'm looking forward to the beautiful adventure. And I'm also preparing myself for whatever else is is here. You know, my dad is sick and there's a lot of things, you know, sort of here that are asking me to be a witness to a lot. So that's what's going on. And speaking of being a witness, today on the show, John Kabat-Zinn is here. He is remarkable and he's written so many books and he's done so much to help the world understand mindfulness. There's a book of his called Wherever You Go, There You Are that I have bought so many times because I give it to people. I'll just say, take this book. It is beautiful and it will touch your soul. So I highly recommend that you read that book. But there's so many amazing books of his that I've read. And I've wanted to have him on the show forever since I started the show. So I'm so happy that he's here today. And that's so much of the conversation that we're talking about today is how can we roll out the welcome mat to everything that is and just make space for, for the totality of this present moment and it's just amazing how healing that is and how beautiful and in integrity you feel when you stop running or distracting yourself or trying to be somewhere other than where you are there's something really beautiful and so important and so healing about being with whatever is here and that's what this conversation is about. So it's very fitting for how I've been feeling this week. Before I say a little more about John Kabat-Zinn, I want to share that we're doing a flash sale for our membership. And this membership is just so sacred and special. It's called The Quilt because I believe that each of us is sewn together, so to speak, by a common thread. We share this common thread of empathy and reaching for higher consciousness and just beautiful souls, amazing women who can be there for each other to support each other through the hard things and celebrate each other through the amazing things. 
And so we're doing a flash sale for 25% off. You can use the code PEACE. PEACE is my word for this year. So if you go to kathyheller.com slash quilts, you can be a part of this membership. And this membership is really, it's so powerful. We meet every single week for about two hours. We sit together. We spend time meditating. We spend time sharing with one another. And there's some coaching. And it's just really soul nourishing. And I'd love for you to be a part of it. So you can go to kathyheller.com slash quilt and use the code PEACE. And that will be good for the next few days if you want to save 25%. So diving back into today's episode, we have John Kabat-Zinn with us, and he is just brilliant. He's a meditation teacher, a scientist, an author, a professor of medicine emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, the founder of the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society, and he's the founder of the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Clinic, which has a program that's been used at medical centers, hospitals, and health maintenance organizations. Some of you may be familiar with his life-changing books. I said before that I love wherever you go, there you are. His work is foundational. It's a guide to mindfulness and meditation. It combines his research and medical background with his spiritual knowledge to help readers find peace and change their lives. He recently released the 30th anniversary edition of this book, Wherever You Go, There You Are, which features a new introduction and afterword from John. Plus, it contains factual updates throughout the book to address the changes in research and knowledge since it was first published. This is one of my favorite books, as I said, and I just can't recommend it enough. So do yourself a favor and go get a copy. I've been a student of John Kabat-Zinn for a very long time, and it was really a treat to sit with him. He has a tremendous amount of passion for what he teaches, and it was an honor to have him and to have this conversation. I won't keep you waiting any longer. Without further ado, please welcome the beautiful soul, John Kabat-Zinn. It is such an incredible gift to be sitting with you right now. So ladies and gentlemen, John Kabat-Zinn is here and really here, as you always are, wherever you are, you're there. Thank Even you. if it's remote, as they say. Thank you for being here. Yeah, and I hope it's not remote in that sense of it. So there's so much I want to talk to you about, but one of the things I'm really curious about is the beginning of this journey for you, like what it looked like, where you were at when you realized that you were going to make this your life's work, like what was it about where you were and where you then knew you were headed that just became so central to who you are? Well, that's a a very profound question. And there are virtually an infinite number of answers to it. There are Mm -hmm. infinite number of ways that I could respond. And all of them would be variations on the theme of the story of me, starring me and how I'm seeing it and the impressions I want to create. Sometimes they're more conscious and instrumental, and sometimes they're less conscious if you're just not aware of certain sort of undercurrents within the psyche. So I try to stay away from the story of me because that's the least interesting part of my work. And again, I get enough projections already from other people that, you know, and the more I tell my story, whichever way I decide to craft it or play it out to the world. And it is you know, amazing. But my, my point is that everybody's stories are amazing and none of them are true enough. Even if they're wonderful or even if they're traumatic, that the most important thing is to never give up on oneself and to understand that this moment is like the crossroads of the past and the future. And the only way we can transform the future is by showing up in the present moment, which only turns out to be the hardest thing in the world. Yeah. And the more you generate that story of me, sometimes it can be empowering or helpful in terms of thinking, okay, what is my karmic assignment in the world? And sometimes it can be imprisoning because it can seem either too grandiose or too minuscule or too whatever. And you start judging yourself as inadequate in one way or another. And that's in many ways the kiss of death. So my work is about helping people to recognize that, and as we say to our patients in the first class in MBSR, as long as you're breathing, there's more right with you than wrong with you, no matter what's wrong with you. And, you know, the story of what's wrong with me 
sometimes it's endless, but we forget that there is more right with us in any moment, biologically, psychologically, socially, in any moment, but that often we really aren't in touch with it or it's just a kind of fabrication of one's thinking and we're not really embodied in that way. So that said, as a kind of preamble, you know, I grew up in a family where science was really valued because my father was a world-class, what would now be called molecular immunologist, teaching at Columbia Medical School and doing, you know, amazing research on the nature of antibodies. And my mother was a painter. And, you know, my father was very well known in his field. My mother was not known at all. And she never showed her work. And she only sold one painting out of, I mean, she was incredibly prolific. She made tens of thousands of paintings and sketches and in all sorts of different media. And she only sold one painting and gave one away. And she regretted both of them because she, she would really wanted to hold on to her stuff. So her first exhibit was part of an exhibit that at a kind of assisted living place where she was living at age 100. She had her first paintings shown. And it was just phenomenal for her. It was wonderful. And everybody gave her so much wonderful feedback. So I grew up in this culture, which C.P. Snow in the 50s called the, the two cultures, science and art. And I had a kind of very young appreciation of who my parents were, but I also saw that they didn't appreciate each other's deep insights. My mother, of course, couldn't understand molecular immunology, although she helped my father proofread all his books and papers and stuff like that. So she knew all the words, but it wouldn't make sense to anybody. It's in a language unto itself. And my father, although we went to the Museum of Modern Art every Sunday, and they even put me in school as a five-year-old at the museum school, my father had no real appreciation of what he was seeing at the museum. And I somehow, even as a very young boy, appreciated, could see that. And began to think as I grew older, that, or to feel as I grew older, that there must be some way that human beings can hold the beauty of all these different worlds, you know, mm -hmm. different music and painting and sculpture and all sorts of different science is like not just immunology or molecular biology, but you know, astronomy and what's going on in the universe and physics and cosmology. And so that kind of led me, you know, on a kind of journey to want to understand myself, like the nature of my own mind. And I thought the way to do that is to go up that ladder of physics and chemistry and biology. And then ultimately what was there was no neuroscience in those days, so it was called neurophysiology. And, and I didn't really want, I wasn't interested in neurophysiology. I wanted to understand the nature of mind. And then when I was at MIT, I heard a talk by Philip Kaplow, an American Zen master who was invited to MIT by a professor of philosophy named Houston Smith. I'd never heard of either of them. I just happened to be walking down the infinite corridors of MIT in the late afternoon, one day in 1965, depressed out of my mind that the Gulf of Tonkin had just happened or was just about to happen. I mean, the Vietnam War was like in its incipient phases, but I already, you know, knew what was going on on that score. And I saw this sign, the three pillars of Zen. And I went to the talk. I was advertising that talk. And I wrote about this. There's a chapter in it called Dying Before You Die, I think, or maybe it's Dying Before You Die Deux in coming to our senses. I went to that talk by Philip Kaplow and it basically there were only four people there aside from the two of them. So it wasn't like a big draw at MIT at seminar hour. But that talk took the top of my head and I was twenty one years old and I started meditating that night and then I've never stopped. Now, I started a lot of things when I was younger and stopped at a certain point or gave out. Even if I thought they were fabulous things, I never wound up like pursuing them, but I never stopped meditating and it just grew deeper and deeper. And, and yoga was a part of it. That's a whole other stream that came about by going to a karate studio in Boston in that same era in the mid 1960s and in the karate, you know, this Okinawan karate taught by you know, young Marines who were just coming back from the Vietnam War. And they were doing these in 
incredible warm-up exercises, which I, I said, what's this with these warm-up exercises? And they said, oh, this is yoga. You know, it was like the shoulder stand, the plow and the fish. And so I gave up the karate and just did to yoga. Wow. Oh, I did continue in the martial arts and I got a second done black belt in a Korean Zen sword fighting martial art called Shimgam Do, which mind sword path, which this Korean Zen master recommended that that would be a nice compliment to my sitting meditation. And it was because it really is kind of metaphorically about cultivating warrior's mind, which is outside of time and space and death and birth. Listening to you talk is like listening to music and your own resonance. And I know you already know this and people probably reflect this, but there's such a power in the signal that you broadcast that's just listening to you. It's sort of like, it's a incredible river that we can all kind of like get in, which is amazing. I appreciate you saying that because I don't actually know that. I see the effects of it, but I can't possibly know it because I, I can't really be in the experience of another. But, and it's not contrived. In other words, I'm not trying to have that kind of an effect with right. the way I speak or my voice or even the choice of words. It's more like, this is just who I am. And part of it is that love of uh, language and languaging and being able to set up resonances that are meaningful that might resonate in the heart of another person. So rather than going straight into the head, they just go straight into the heart and be understood in a different way than if they are merely cognitive. And I love that. So I think there's a poetic element to science, you know, and most people are turned off to science or engineering, but that's often because they don't really understand how insanely beautiful and miraculous a lot of it is. You know, human beings have what you might call a very refined awareness. And my working definition of mindfulness is basically mindfulness is pure awareness. Okay. But I often use the languaging of mindfulness is the awareness that arises from paying attention on purpose in the present moment. Because most of the time we are all born with awareness. I mean, it's not like you have to get it. But there's all sorts of barriers to actually living inside it. So the access to awareness is really problematic for most of us because we're trained so much to live inside of thinking as our default mode and emotioning, if you will, you know, being caught up in thoughts and emotions all the time and seeing through those lenses that that's the reality we're constructing. It's not the real reality, but we construct realities and very often to our detriment because they're not real enough, they're not big enough, they're not insightful enough, and they're mostly when it comes to the personal pronouns like I, me, and mine, they're just plain wrong. But if you beat yourself up for 10 or 20 years about how I'm not good enough or something like that, and you don't recognize you're in the insane beauty that you have by virtue of being the product of not 3.5 billion years of evolution, but if you think about the universe, 13.8 billion years of evolution, all impersonal, all just like forces, but they give, give him rise to you and everybody who's listening at the moment. I mean, the fact is that you're an insanely miraculous being and virtually genius hmm. in any number of different ways. But often when we get stuck in thought, then we often don't understand ourselves, feel alienated from ourselves succumb to anxiety, depression, if trauma is a part of it. And boy, are we living in the midst of trauma right now of all kinds and among all sorts of different peoples and belief systems. And so, so mindfulness really is very germane, not just to stress reduction or getting yourself through life a little bit better, but it really is in some sense the final common pathway of what makes us human, that awareness that we were talking about at first. And if we don't wake up to the name we gave ourselves as a species, I like to sort of frame it in these kind of evolutionary terms, Homo sapiens sapiens, which Linnaeus called us. So that means from sapere, Latin for to taste or to know. So you know a banana not by reading the Encyclopedia of Bananas, but by taking one bite. Mm. 
And you know much more than if you read the entire encyclopedia mm-hmm. of bananas, okay? So we're the species that is aware and is aware that we are aware. So what's called, technically speaking, awareness and meta-awareness. A lot of psychologists think of it as cognition and metacognition, which is really all thought-based, which is, and so there's a kind of revolutionary possibility of humans waking up to our true nature, what the Buddhists might call our true nature, or our deepest capacities. And if we don't do it, the planet's not going to care, but this life form will care. Our seven generations down the road of humans will maybe be in places that we would not wish on anybody, other life forms as well. So the stakes are actually very high that we wake up, not just as individual people and live good lives without, you know, killing each other, which we seem to have a very great deal of trouble getting around to. And at the same time, the question of life on earth and the seventh extinction and so forth caused by the human mind that doesn't know itself and the greed, anger, and hatred and delusion that come out of a mind when it doesn't know itself. That's what the stakes are. And that's why I do what I do. I mean, that's why I teach. And if I knew something more powerful than mindfulness, not just as a formal meditation practice, absolutely critical that we actually learn how to practice as a formal meditation practice and integrate it into our lives in a really beautifully disciplined way, not as a kind of one more thing I have to load onto my to-do list, but exactly. It doesn't go on a to-do list. It's on the to-be list. And it's the only thing you need to put on your to-be list is present in the present moment because it's the only moment any of us ever have to wake up or to live and feel and think or love or make anything happen. So, so that's kind of like all I want to say about my sort of personal motivation, so to speak, for doing the work that I do. Because these personal pronouns that I mentioned, the problematic ones, because everybody's now talking about pronouns. What are your pronouns? I don't like to say what my pronouns are. I mean, I'm like, because I'm trying to get rid of my pronouns, so to speak. The I, me, and mine. Plural pronouns I don't have any problem with. But the we, okay, for me, the we is like human. I don't want any other descriptors other than human. And then within that kind of non-dual perspective, what's going on in, you know, in Israel and in Gaza at the moment, I mean, it's like an absolute nightmare, travesty. And it's just like almost impossible to witness as a human being. And on all sides, so everybody's terrorized and terrified. And we think of ourselves as a kind of enlightened, educated, advanced civilization. And it's like, come on, let's look in the mirror, let's wake up, and then let's redefine governing, okay? Because what meditation is really about is how you govern yourself. The word dharma in the Buddhist tradition, which means the sort of teachings of the Buddha, it has another meaning, which is the lawfulness of things. It's like the Tao, okay? The way things are. So the real invitation with meditation is how do you govern yourself? Mm -hmm. And how do you govern yourself in the face of like bureaucracies that are sort of only self-interest in the smallest of ways? So we need to inquire into what is self and what is true self-interest and whether it's a nation or whether it's the planet or whether it's you as a human being. If your story of me, if your self story is too small, then you will wind up in a defensive, protective, aggressive, fearful mind state. And then when you feel provoked, God knows what will happen, but we're seeing it played out. Okay, that's the mind state. And then we say, no, that was the war to end all wars until we have the next war. Right. And so this this is not a prescription for happiness on planet Earth. And even planet Earth is not happy anymore. And we have enough technology to understand that in the way we didn't like 100 years ago. You can see what's happening with the glaciers because the satellites can photograph the glaciers over the past 50, 60 years. That's the water supply for at least a third of humanity, and it's gone. So you just asked me one question, and already we've been going for like 20 minutes, I think. That's insane. So I'll back off now and just let you ask me questions. One of the things that you mentioned earlier, which I'm going to sort of highlight because it comes up a lot when I'm speaking with people, is this sense that 
they feel they're not good at meditation because they think that the goal is not to think. Mm. I'd love for you to explain, if you can, what really is it and what is it about understanding it that could allow people to lean in more toward it because it would feel more accessible rather than this thing that they think they're quote unquote bad at because their mind keeps going. And they uh, they are reifying a particular idea about what they would be experiencing if they were quote unquote good meditator. Right. Yeah. So people say like, I can't meditate. And there's even a chapter in where there you are that's called that. So the trouble with words in general is that it's they're pointers. And so it's almost impossible for me to say it in such a way that it will have an impact for the rest of your life. But that's my intention is that this is not kidding around. This is not some nice little thing that you do to make yourself feel better or a little less stressed. It's like, oh, do you want to miss the entirety of your life and create some fiction that you're living in, which is going to include a lot of unnecessary suffering? Or do you want to actually open to the full potential range of the beauty that is you, unique on the planet, even if you're an identical twin, still totally unique. And that's really the challenge. So when it comes to your question, the first thing to know is that taking your seat in formal meditation, and it could be done sitting, standing on your head, running, whatever, but I'm going to use sitting as an example because nobody likes it, (laughs) except once you get into it. And then it's not a matter of liking, it's just like sitting is like, lying down. You can meditate in bed. I mean, it's really beautiful to meditate. But you can meditate at the stove. You can meditate cooking. You can meditate right. hugging your children. And you should. But, uh, <laughs> but what does that mean? It means fully present in the timeless quality of this moment and underneath thought or outside of thought, so to speak. It's not like you're shutting off thinking or feelings, but awareness is like space. Okay. We were talking about the Big Bang and the universe. So the nature of space, which is seriously not understood, but there's no question that space from a cosmological point of view is boundless and that there's no center to the universe, nor is there a periphery or a circumference or a boundary to the universe. Okay. So now think about your own awareness for a moment. Can you find the center of your awareness if I ask you to? Even... If I give you a half an hour, you know, you won't find the center of it because there is no center. Can you find the outer edge, the periphery or the circumference of awareness? Awareness is like space. I mean, it's like infinite. And it's ours, as I said, but we have to cultivate access to it. So when you take your seat, metaphorically, if not literally, to meditate, to drop into the present moment, first thing is you're at least open to the potential to by inhabiting the present moment, you're letting go of conventional time. Right. You're just here in the timeless moment we call now. And you're not trying to improve on yourself or have a good feeling or relax or have an insight or anything like that. You're just resting in awareness. Now, that's the invitation. But if the mind is not restful, it's going to say, well, I'm resting in awareness for 30 seconds. Nothing <laughs> What's supposed to happen? And the answer is nothing is supposed to happen. <laughs> nothing. What's supposed to happen is what is happening. So you could be having a miserable time. Your neck could be hurting. Your back could be hurting. You could be incredibly angry. And as you, you embrace that in awareness because awareness is big enough to hold it all and hold anything. And then you can ask yourself some really interesting questions and you can watch and look and feel. Is the awareness angry? or in pain, or anything else. And this is not an invitation to dissociate. It's to just look and look at the nature of awareness when you're suffering. Right. Without trying to change anything. And it turns out that your awareness is an inhabitable domain, like a hidden dimension, just like the cosmologists and physicists speak about hidden dimensions to, you know, space-time continuum. And it's inhabitable. You can take up residency in the present moment. And it's not about feeling good or having some wonderful, calm, insightful experience. But as you engage in this radical act 
which I call a radical act of one sanity, because it's just stopping and dropping into the present moment, which is your life. And so when you do that, it's a very radical act of sanity. But it's also what I'm coming around to saying more and more, a radical act of love. It's love of the miracle of being alive in this moment. And if it was up to us to be breathing, as I like to say, we would have died a long time ago because, you know, we take everything for granted, but we're not allowed anywhere near the breathing mechanism, the biological breathing mechanism, because we would die every time we went to sleep. So it's taken care of for us. So there's a certain way in which we don't appreciate our own insane biological mystery. Whether it's giving birth to babies, I mean, every one of us is born and was gestated in the body of a woman. I don't have to tell you that as a woman, but the fact is that very often all of us humans forget the miracle, the insane miracle that the evolution of sentience figured out how to do this through embodiment. And men don't do that. It's like got divided. It was a kind of division of labor within evolutionary time, long before there were humans. But once it figures something out, it keeps it that way. But now with all our technology and stuff like that, there's nothing that we can't mess up. Right. Okay. Or think, oh, we can do a better job by bringing more technology into it and improving on biology and so forth. And I mean, it's one thing when you're trying to sort of alleviate suffering and disease and all sorts of other things like that. But it's quite another thing when you want humans 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever. And believe me, once the mind can think in along those lines and has technologies that can mess around with the genome and CRISPR and you're know, rearranging sort of the genetic code, where's the wisdom? I mean, without wisdom, this is going to just lead to more insanity in the hands of certainly either the wrong people or just ignorant people. So we're so precocious as a species We've been precocious on the technological side. We need to be precocious on the the heart side. So taking your seat is like a radical act of sanity and love, and you just be here. And you don't try to improve on the present moment or wonder, what am I supposed to be feeling? What you're supposed to be feeling is exactly what you're feeling in this moment. And that's awareness. You're aware of it, and you don't have to do anything with it. But it's so depressing. It's so anxious. It's so miserable, and I'm so impatient, and my body is killing me. Okay, oh, no problem. Just see if you can be here for one in-breath and one out-breath with it. And maybe then get up and forget about meditating. And the next time you take your seat, which could be in an hour or a day, maybe two breaths. Just hang in and see like what's going on without trying to fix or change anything at all. And certainly not get to some better, more relaxed meditative state. So that's cultivating access to your awareness. And then ultimately, life itself becomes the meditation practice. There's no time during waking life, at least, when you can't remember that, hey, this is it. And, uh, you know, I like to quote Thoreau from Walden because he said this, like, you know, 180 years ago or whatever it was, when he went off on retreat to Walden and, and said, I went to the woods because I wish to live deliberately to front, meaning confront only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not be before I discovered that I hadn't lived. Mm. You and that's it. it. Those are the stakes. Those were the stakes in 1830, and those are the, the stakes now, but they're much, much higher in a way. It's about not losing touch with what's deepest and best in yourself and realizing that it's all here right now. And if you want to, the future to be different, the only leverage you have is to inhabit the present moment. And when you do, the next moment is different because you've shown up in this one. And one thing does lead to another. So over time, you may wind up living the life that's yours to live and understanding what your karmic assignment or karmic trajectory really is and learning to actually love it, even if it's difficult, even if you didn't ask for it or whatever, Mm -hmm. but to make it sing in a certain way. One of the things that you just alluded to a few different ways is the insistence that our mind has on 
feeling a certain way. And what you taught me over the last many years of reading your books and listening to you is uh, a relationship with the idea of equanimity, which I had never known. And I had always been, and I still am aware of the fact that there's a part of me that lives for these crescendo moments. Like I'm wanting a certain feeling as opposed to remembering to remember that one of the most satisfying feelings is being with what is. And you taught me that this relationship with equanimity to sit beside the river, that we can be with things as they are, and that there's this feeling of deep integrity that is so satisfying when you stop having an agenda to make a certain thing the goal all the time. And we live in this world in which people are just in this insatiable, I'm after more, and it needs to be this. And that feels like a hell realm. And I'm yeah. curious if you can speak to that because that well, is I don't basically... Need to. You're, you're, okay. you're so eloquent on the subject. I mean, it's you like I don't need to open my mouth. You taught me all of this. It's, but you're very articulate. I mean, it's about it. It's really, if you got it from me, so much the better. I'm glad to hear it because that's the bow right back to you. That's the, as I said, the only reason that I, and I think everybody else who's a mindfulness teacher is, is engaged in the kind of work that we're doing because it's not about becoming a good meditator, whatever that might mean. It's about being who you are in your fullness while you have the chance, which is only now because everything else is either over or a fiction and a supposition. So great if you've reached some kind of sense of engagement with mindfulness as a way of being. I'm really happy to hear that. I mean, and having a conversation with, like this with you on your podcast with so many other people listening is really, I think, very powerful that we're all in some sense together pondering what it means to show up in the world as a human being in the form of me, the unique form of me, and to not be so hard on ourselves. You know, that's the, there's that wonderful poem by Emily Dickinson that I, is one of my favorites about the personal pronouns. It goes like this, if you don't mind it, because I think the people listening might recognize themselves in it. Me from myself to banish had I art impregnable my fortress unto all heart. But since myself assault me, how have I peace except by subjugating consciousness? And since we're mutual monarch, how this be except by abdication, me of me. So we're at war with ourselves right. all the time over like, what's wrong with me? What's not right with me? And, like, and you know, that can drive people crazy. I mean, yeah. and drive everybody else around them crazy too. It's just when you identify with yourself in that small-minded way with those personal pronouns, the me that is, and then you fill in the blank. And then I'm at war with myself because I also want this and I know I'm beautiful, but I can't get there and whatever it is. And I've made so many mistakes. It's not possible to, it's like all, you know what it's all called? It's called thinking. That's all it is. It's thinking. And when you believe it and you get seduced by the emotional valence of it all, then you're in prison. And the opportunity to step out of the prison, first of all, the key is in the door. So all you need to do is turn the key and open the door and you're not in prison anymore. And that's where the mindfulness comes in. And there's another poem that, from Derek Walcott that speaks to that. And I like to use these two poems together. So again, if you don't mind... Of course not. Derek Walcott won the Nobel Prize maybe 10 years ago in literature and he's an Afro-Caribbean poet from the island of St. Lucia. This is a pretty short poem that a lot of your listeners mm -hmm. may know because it's called Love After Love and it's easy. Yeah. So I think about what Emily Dickinson was saying about the me from myself to banish. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror 
and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was your son. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to yourself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, who you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit peace on your life. So take that to the oh, meditation beautiful. cushion. Take that to the meditation. Sit, feast on your life. How do you do that? Just rest in awareness. Whatever arises, let it come, let it go. You don't have to build the story about it. You don't have to build the story of me and how good I am, how bad I am. Just attending, attending. That's what they call doctors who make rounds in the hospital. They call them attendings. It would be a good idea if the doctors were fully present. And of course, they try to be, strive to be, but they're also stressed and everything else when they're doing that. So, And we have a very high gain receptor for knowing when somebody's supposed to be paying it full attention to us and isn't, whether it's listening or gazing or whatever. And so mm. learning how to actually inhabit the present moment without an agenda other than to fall awake Come back to wakefulness every time the mind gets drawn off, which it will, not billions, trillions of times in even a five-minute period of time, so that you don't have to beat yourself up for that. That's just like the ocean waves because there's atmospheric conditions. So the mind waves, atmospheric conditions. <laughs> but if you drop underneath 20 or 30 meters, there's like total calm. And so it's not like you're trying to gain calmness. It's like... You have it, you are it, but you need to sort of open to dropping beneath the waves of thought, emotion, right in this timeless moment. These are such essential gifts that you're giving. This book, I mentioned to you that I always have 10 copies because I just give it away and then I replenish. And it's such a uh, beautiful map to our coming back home. To I'm very touched that you say that because... I've never said this before publicly, but uh, in the old days, like decades before I wrote Wherever You Go, There You Are, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind meant that to me. And I gave away hundreds of copies. Mm -hmm. I have a copy on my bookshelf right here that a doctor gave to me who sat through one of the early classes in MBSR at the hospital. And she wrote something in it that said something like, I'm writing in this book so that you will not be able to give it away to anybody else. But that impulse to share with other people something that's been so valuable to you uh -huh. around this incredibly rich possibility of not letting your life go by without actually inhabiting right. it. That's right. Is really powerful. And then because of the title, Wherever You Go, There You Are, I also get a lot of letters and emails from people saying, I took this book to the rainforest in Brazil <laughs> when I was 20 years old and I still have it on my bookshelf and, you know, stuff like that because right. people travel with it because it's got very short chapters and you can dive in and stuff. And I had right. a lot of fun revising it because I thought, why should I revise this book after 30 years? But so I put a new forward in it. And completely redid the afterward, which I wrote 20 years ago for the 10th anniversary edition. So this is the 30th anniversary edition. And I sort of felt like, well, I don't want to rewrite the book. I mean, and it's pretty good the way it is. Yeah, but, it is. <laughs> but I wanted to kind of take it to an entirely different level or maybe not take the book to an entirely different level, but take the reader to an entirely different level. So I have a kind of a, the forward is kind of like a long ramping launch platform like evil Knievel, you know, to sort of uh, yeah, jump yeah. over like 50 cars lined up or something. Like that. So it's a kind of ramp launch. And then the afterward is meant to, at the end of the book, to kind of gently drop you down into only the rest of your life. Oh. And by moment, but. Only that you just said something again that you mentioned before, which is so powerful. You know, this idea that I find when I'm speaking with people, they believe that happiness is somewhere else. It's right. always in the future. 
Like, and it's somewhere else in space and time. And you were just saying so beautifully that we have this invitation to inhabit only our life, only our actual life. And I wonder if you could speak to what does it mean that happiness is not in the future, that that's a big illusion, but that there's something that is called some version of, of feeling peace and being present that that's available right now. How do we find our way there? You said it. So I encourage people to chop the T off of there Yeah. in a lot of our speech and thought, because often we use there to mean here, or it would help if we did mean here rather than there. And so what I do often is just remind people of, you know, how it's stated in the wisdom and wisdom or Prajnaparamita tradition in the Chan, ancient Chan Zen tradition which is that there's no place to go, there's nothing to do, and there's no special state that you're trying to attain. So it's not like, oh, if I'm really good at this, then I'll achieve a mindful state. There is no such thing as the mindful state. Any condition you're in, including depression, anxiety, murderous rage, can be right in one moment grokked and recognized and liberated so that you're no longer a prisoner or a slave to those feelings or emotions right in that moment with awareness. Because as we started out saying, awareness is just infinitely big and it recognizes everything. It's like a mirror, but a like n-dimensional mirror that has the cognitive capacity to recognize whatever is arising and see its truest nature as like selfing in the form of greed, in the f- form of fear, in the form of hatred, in the form of othering, in the form right. of morphemy and you don't deserve to live or whatever it is. <laughs> and then to recognize, oh, that's not just in the terrorists, that's in all of us in a certain way. And we need to sort of come to this moment in a way that actually recognizes our own beauty and also fallibility and not default to the fallibility, but to default to the love. And that's like yoga. It's like exercising a muscle. You know, the mind goes off, you bring it back. The mind goes off, recognize what carried you off or where it carried you because you may not recognize the moment it goes off, but downstream at some point you'll wake up and realize, oh, I'm not aware of my breathing or my body or sitting here at all. So then at that moment, you notice what's on your mind. And that's revelatory. It's revealing of something. And then you don't judge yourself, good, bad, like, dislike. You just bring it back, this again. And as you do that, and sometimes you won't want to bring it back, or you're bored, or you're angry, and you feel like this stupid, so you just, I'm going to just give up, not going to meditate anymore. Perfect moment to just bring it back, mm-hmm. this breath. And you'll discover like one moment you'll hate it. The next moment you'll be so at home. You think, why the hell didn't I start this when I was 20 years old? I mean, there's so much to talk about and we just have a few more minutes because I want to respect your day. But so much of the work that you've done has been helping people to connect everything you're saying and have an effect on their physical health as well as their internal environment. And lately, we've all been watching Dan Butner's work with the Blue Zones and people living into their hundreds. And I, I had him on the show and I found it interesting that he talked about their meditation practice. And he said their meditation practice reduces the inflammation in their body. Yeah, and that's has, true. Meditation. And has, right. So I'm just curious. You, you've been doing so much work on this. So it's pretty difficult to ask you to say one thing on it. But what do we need to maybe be aware of? that we can understand that our mind can do for our own biological and physical well-being? Well, there are an infinite number of doors into that question, one of which might be like, do your eyes work? Mm -hmm. Just stop for a moment and reflect on the miracle of having eyes that work. Not everybody has eyes that work. I see you have glasses, I have glasses. So, you know, without technology, we would not see very well. But when people are young, or now with this kind of technology, I see total miracle. 
people who won the Nobel Prize for color vision, George Wald, who I knew when he was in his prime. But no matter how much they know about color vision, the miracle of it never ceases, you know. The ears work. If you're not deaf, they work. And it's like taking sound, the waves in the air, and they vibrate the tympanic membrane, and then that triggers certain kind of nerves that go to the auditory sensory regions of the cerebral cortex. And you're following this sentence as I'm wagging my tongue and making these plosive kinds of vibrations in the air. And it's also being transmitted over a computer wirelessly. And you're following every sound that I'm making. And it's actually a coherent grammatical sentence. It's a total, total miracle. And we take so much for granted alone. That's why the meditation practice traditionally starts with the body. The first foundation of mindfulness is the body. So the miracle of being embodied, mm-hmm. like extraordinary. But then we don't know who we are. Who is embodied? What is that? Who am I? It's the most powerful of all meditative inquiries. Who or what am I? And the most important thing is not fill that space up with answers. You're not your name. You're not your age. You're not your ideas or opinions. They change all the time. You you know, okay, who are you? Then probably the most realistic and responsible answer would be, I don't know. Yeah. And what about being that not knowing? You see, that's awareness. The awareness. All the, the greatest scientists have to understand not knowing. And be able to rest in in a kind of an awareness of what they don't know, knowing everything that they know. So right at the edge of between knowing and not knowing, seeing and not having insight. And then all of a sudden, something shifts and there is an insight. And you see, aha, eureka. And you understand something that no one ever has seen before. And whether other people have seen before in terms of scientific discovery, that may be important. But in terms of your own discovery, you're learning to walk a path that many people have walked, but everybody walks their own path. We have a lot of commonality, but you, no one else can walk the path for you. So in that sense, that's why practicing formal meditation every day as if your life depended on it is really, really important. And I think that's one of the reasons that the books are so powerful because that people understand that it's not the read this book by John Kabat-Zinn. No, it's like, get your ass on the cushion. Yeah, exactly. Literally and metaphorically, even if it's lying in bed when you wake up and we say, yeah, now I'm awake. Bullshit. Now I'm on automatic pilot. Have I really waked up or not? Have I really woken up? So check when you wake up, give yourself a few moments and ask yourself, am I really awake? And before you jump out of bed, Can you feel your hands lying in the corpse pose, you know, on your back in bed? Can I feel the sensations in my hands, in my fingers, in the backs of my hands? Can I direct the attention more to the left hand than the right hand or more to the right hand than the left hand? You play with this stuff. How about the foot? How about the left foot or the right foot or the whole left side of the body or the right side? And you begin to see that, oh, okay. And this is just at the level of the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. Then the second foundation of mindfulness is what's called Vedanas, or liking and disliking or not noticing at all. So we're kind of like puppets of our own likes and dislikes. We're like completely controlled by unconscious impulses to like or dislike. So you can bring awareness to that. Is the experience of the left hand pleasant in this moment, unpleasant in this moment, or neutral? What about the right hand? What about someplace in that you chronically have some kind of pain or whatever. And then you can just do that with anything, like, you know, my calendar for the day or the kids or what they need or whatever. And so if you got to get the kids up in the morning or whatever it is, you got a lot of do to stuff to do. Before you do the doing, try to ask yourself, who's going to do all this doing today and drop it to being for a time. If it means waking up, 10 minutes earlier to do that exercise in bed or an hour earlier or two hours earlier and really do a whole sequence of sitting and mindful yoga down on the floor, all of which is described in the book, then your life depends on this. Why not do it? I mean, it's like we don't want to sleep through our entire lives or sleepwalk through our entire lives. So 
then life itself becomes the meditation practice. And as I said, it, it all becomes a love affair. And it's not like, oh, I'll do it the way John Kabat-Zinn does it. I can't even do it the way John Kabat-Zinn does it. I mean, because <laughs> you never know what's going to happen next. But you could do it the way it's arising for you in this moment. And remember that that's good enough for now. And then life will teach you everything you need to know. And your meditation practice will develop on a multiplicity of levels, including the instrumental level where you get better and better at it and you really understand it better. And most importantly, the non-instrumental method, the element of it or non-instrumental dimension where there really truly is no improving on the present moment. There's no place to go, nothing to, nothing to attain. And even all the things we want to be better in the world, the best leverage we yes. have transforming the world is to transform ourselves in this yeah. timeless moment. And then our actions and how lightly we live on the earth and how much we engage other people in political action or whatever it is that we're drawn to do, that's kind of full engagement. That's full engagement. And that will, in some sense, be, I think, the only way we can live our way into the name our species name in time to, you know, sort of tilt things in the direction of sanity. Tell everybody, I believe this book comes out in December, right? We'll put a link. And, Thank um, you. Yeah, well, listen, may people find some benefit in our conversation, but I have to say, I mean, I've really appreciated talking with you, and I hope we get a chance to cross paths more often. First of all, you ask beautiful questions, and you're a great listener. And second of all, I mean, obviously, we could have talked for six hours. I don't know if you have any. I mean, idea maybe of what we didn't even get to, to question two that you were. That you're you're such know. a giant in my life. You've given me back so much of my life. You've taken away so much suffering from my life with your words and your love. I asked you once 20 years ago, I asked you at UCLA, I was in a big lecture. I raised my hand and I said, if somebody's in a lot of pain and they feel their nervous system starts to be so overwhelmed when they meditate, would you say to sit and keep sitting? And you were really kind and you were like, no, do it for a couple minutes and then just take a walk on the beach. And there was such a loving, non-judgmental, non-pretense about you. And that's what gave me the courage to keep doing it a little bit more was the unconditional kindness in you and the wisdom, the great wisdom. And, and that's how I learned that poem about arriving at your own door. And so many things I say I'm just quoting you all the time. So it's well, really wonderful. such a blessing to meet you. And since you're in the LA area and you mentioned the beach, I mean, you probably know that there are large groups of people who meditate on the beach every morning. And are you, I feel like I picture you still in Massachusetts. Is that where you yeah, live? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. still in Massachusetts. That's the best place to be, honestly. It's well, New England to me is magic and you belong in magic. So anyway, thank you so much for being here. The way you. I see it is, the entire planet is pretty magical. Yeah, but fall in New England. Come on. It's That's right. Like... No, no, no. I'm gazing out the window right <laughs> now, and yet you don't see that in California. No, you don't. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, um, thank you for inviting me to be on, on your program, and I wish you and all your listeners, for every one of your guests, all the best and, and a real a kind of adventure in aligning with what's deepest and best in us as human beings, because... This is a really an all-hands-on-deck moment yeah, on Spaceship Earth, as uh, yeah. Buckminster Fuller used to call it. I, I'm not kidding that that like yeah. we need everybody to show up in their fullness, in their truest nature, and, That's right. and stand up for justice and the possibility for everybody on planet Earth finding an adequate way to make it between life and death with as little harm and as much beauty as possible. What a beautiful and important, important message at this moment. You're right. We need everybody's presence. So let's get I'll present stay in touch. to read the book. I would love to. Thank you yeah. so much. Okay. Yeah, okay. feel free to. Thank okay. you. Be well. Okay. Wow. All right. Well, here are the takeaways. Number one, as long as you're breathing, there's more right with you than wrong with you, no matter what. There is more right with us in any moment. Number two, the only thing you need to put on your to-be list is present in the present moment, because it's the only moment any of us ever have. Number three, take your seat in the present moment. It's not about feeling good or having some wonderful, calm, insightful experience. 
It's just about stopping and dropping into the present moment, which is your life. When you do that, it's a very radical act of sanity and a radical act of love. It's love of the miracle of being alive in this moment. Number four, give back your heart to yourself. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Number five, there's no place to go. There's nothing to do. And there's no special state that you're trying to attain. There's no there, it's only here. And number six, you're not your name, you're not your age, you're not your ideas or your opinions, so who are you? The most realistic and responsible answer would be, I don't know. Being with that, not knowing, is awareness. And number seven, we need everybody to show up in their fullness and in their truest nature. All right, well, now I want to give a few shout outs to some of our amazing students from our podcast course, which we do once a year. Let's hear it for Robin Hackney and her Spandex and Wine podcast. Also, Lisa Dorn's podcast, Unleash Your Inner Radiance. Christina Summers and her podcast, Loving Your Life Again. And Nina Glazer's Fierce Inner Alchemy podcast. I'm so proud of you guys. And I just am amazed that you guys have been doing such good work and putting out these amazing shows. We're going to put links. So if you guys want to listen to these podcasts, you can check it out in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. I really can't tell you how much I appreciate you. I don't know how to put it into words. I appreciate you so much. There are so many good episodes coming up soon. So please make sure that you follow along on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening. And if you love this show, please leave us a review. And if you feel like you know someone who would appreciate this particular episode, then share it with them, post about it, text them. This is such a great episode. I feel like this could really touch somebody's life. And don't forget that this week we're doing a special for the next few days. If you want to get 25% off and be in my coaching world and work with me, meditate with me every single week and be a part of an incredible community of women and really feel seen and supported, then you can go to kathyheller.com slash quilt and join us and use the code PEACE. That is our coupon code for the New Year's sale. All right, well, I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you soon. Have an amazing weekend. Look at that girl, she's lighting up the world. She'll be a hologram to earn their love. People wait in line to see the way she shines. If she wasn't perfect, would it be enough? Now the sky's on fire. I've lived my whole life walking on a wire. My heart's on fire. I don't want to live a lie. Suddenly, I'm breaking free. Suddenly, I'm breaking free. I have never felt so strong. I've been waiting for so long to be me. Suddenly, I'm breaking free. She hides a broken heart. Just watch her play the part. She casts a spell everywhere she goes. Another Mona Lisa. They all come to see her. Everybody's looking for a hero.
fly.